0: Join Return to Wittenberg for its sixth annual conference. Keynote speaker will be Brief History of Power's very own Dr. Adam Kuntz. The conference is hosted by Faith Lutheran Church in Oregon, Wisconsin, October 7th through the 9th. You are guaranteed an enjoyable time of fellowship and learning with fellow confessional Lutherans. For more information or to register, please go online to ReturnToWittenberg.org. Again, that's ReturnToWittenberg.org for the conference. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith, in the beautiful inland northwest. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this.
1: Dr. Koontz, last time we ended our initial discussion on Dobbs and the overturning of Roe and the shift in Supreme Court precedent, which will have wide-reaching implications for our life together in American society, with a focus on the, the darkness that is targeting younger and younger human beings for development of their psyche in the construction of... Uh, ...sexual decision-making and or identification in order to, I think, from the demon's perspective, uh, wage a a greater chaotic control over our society, over our people, over our collapse. Uh, In this, it was clear that this will, if anything... Harden the distinctions between people who disagree with each other. It will no longer be a a gentleman's disagreement. Uh, We are facing various religions of epic level zeal and hatred. In the past, we've talked about how no matter who you're talking to, their political opposition is crazy. And in fact, that's kind of an understandable position to take sometimes but nonetheless your opponent thinks the same thing about you right Uh, we also then uh, really touched on this long-term theme of the show which is the fracturing of nationalist civilization uh maybe globalists but maybe the globalist dream is fracturing everything so you know there's a maybe a soft distinction there Um, But I think that's probably a good place to to pick up them because you see that the pro-life, you can call them, they're red states now, um, not because the Republicans have always been so very well pro-life, but because the pro-life movement has taken over what remains of the consistent Republican Party. Right. That those places in the country are are self-evidently becoming distinctive from the extreme city centered blue states that are run by a, a a what do I say a polity not of law but of power and of power that will use what it wants to get whatever its agenda forward, whether this is again, globalist banks trying to get us to just fall apart or whether this is some misguided religious zeal for the, the Holy feminine. I know you'll pick your poison on that, but <laughs> uh, let's uh, let's just kind of pick up there again with, with the fracturing as, yep. as something that's going to intensify because of the grooming that is taking place everywhere.
0: Yeah. Because being a child in the United States has been and and still is in the state where you live and the state where I live, it is an obstacle course of horrible proportions. You could be killed before you're born. And then after you're born, you might be turned by your mother, especially statistically likely. Your mother will want to turn you into the opposite sex, especially if you are a boy And if she is not married to your father, you are likely to be abused by someone who is not your father. And on and on and on it goes. And there are all manner of other misfortunes to be faced even before you get to adulthood. So life has become satanic in this sense that it is as Satan tried to be what you make of it. You you can't be what you were made to be, because no one even recognizes that as legitimate. So you're alive, but you don't deserve to be because you're just a clump of cells, or you're a boy, but you don't need to be because you could turn into a girl. It's all satanic who Satan forgot his place and wanted to become other than he was. So all of this is a terrible way to grow up. And it is also why many of the not only political or constitutional discussions that we had, especially last week, but even deeper, let's say, political memes have no purchase on younger generations, because their experience of being born, growing up, and being educated in the United States of America is like being in a horror house and the mirrors distort everything, and there are creepy people screaming at you with blood on their faces. I mean, that's actually part of the aesthetics of pro-abortion protest is things simulating blood. And so it's like Halloween all the time, and I can't get out of the haunted house. So in that case, it would be natural for me not to have some kind of stirring emotions when We want to go, I don't know, kill Russians or something for the sake of freedom. I mean, none of that, all of that relied on people that had semi-stable identities relative to children today and had been permitted a certain degree of security because naivete, especially about your government's foreign policy adventures, can only be produced by security at home, right? Children who have loving, stable homes are shocked by certain things in the world that is one kind of difficulty growing up. And I think everyone is so scared of that difficulty, they have underestimated how wonderful it is to have that difficulty. Rather than the difficulty of being like a a country that is so ravaged by war, that you are cynical about everything, and you have no other recourse than to be cynical, such that a lot of people, probably younger than I am, in the United States are somewhat more in their instincts, like someone who lived through communism in Poland or something than they are like their parents or their grandparents and their political instincts and their sense of what is real and what is funny and where things are headed. So that fracturing that we talked about on a low level between men and women is also a generational fracturing because especially people who are children right now just encounter so many horrors not just confusions, but horrors, even in their own lives, in their own homes, that we we really cannot expect to sustain the political debates we're having, let alone anything else.
1: It's really hard for me to imagine that, and I guess that that shows you how old I am. Um, there There was a time when i i I knew that the generation above me, which technically would be boomers from the tail end of the Gen X, mm-hmm. Um, that they were out of touch. They didn't know what's going on. They couldn't tell reality that I'd grown up in a different reality, and maybe yeah. someday, um, you know, we and I would take our rightful place and um, be better than they were. Um, looking down, I guess now, and seeing that there's this uh, tohu vabohu, uh, obscurity and darkness below, uh, a broiling mass of confusion and chaos, and and frankly, traumatizing abuse. I just don't even know what to make of it. It's beyond my imagination. And I wonder then, is that what the boomers thought when they looked down? I i don't think they thought enough and looked down enough, but um, maybe maybe it was. So do I have to recuse myself from this conversation, I guess, is my question.
0: No, i I don't think that this is cause for intergenerational animosity precisely. I think it is cause for... An exercise an understanding that would not be ours if we lived in a semi-stable or coherent nation. So we we have to exercise ourselves more to understand one another because we have to recognize how vastly we differ from each other in the lives that we have led or even been, been led to lead by virtue of when we were raised and how we were raised and when what seemed normal to us. So a kind of harmless example that, I mean, I suppose you could get angry about or something. Is I really, I really only hear jokes about how you know, uh, you know, she's she's the boss, you know, how the wife is the head of the household. That's very much a joke for boomers, and the reason that it's a joke for boomers is that there's a third thing that is presumptive, which is men are actually the head of the household, that makes the joke funny. To me, that has never seemed funny because it seems to be the way that reality has operated also in the marriages of boomers, but they weren't raised by themselves so they can remember a time where that would be funny because it contrasts with what we all expect or what we all know, or what we all saw on TV. And it, it, it those, it's those kinds of presumptions that create incoherence and misunderstanding. The incoherence and misunderstanding also makes us obviously less politically fruitful than we would otherwise be because we're spending our time fighting with each other. Hmm. So if your group is divided generationally, because it's actually, I don't know, religiously homogeneous, then instead of doing something for the benefit of the group, you can all fight over how the generations despise each other. So that's why I think it's, it's reason for an exercise and understanding and forbearance because we don't really have other options. I mean, I would be willing to fight with boomers if they were c- trying monolithically to kill my children. They're not monolithically. And in fact, politically their instincts are generally better than my own generations in some ways. So those are those are things that, you know, within a group of Christians or within a group of conservative Americans or I'm not sure what I'm conserving maybe I'm just reactionary now but whatever it is that I am I w- I want to minimize the misunderstandings between the people within my group because they they will be numerous because we're all it's like we're all we've all been raised at least in different worlds and now we all commonly inhabit a very strange world.
1: Yeah, we're we're all in a circus and coming from from different tents and with yeah, with very little uh preparation is it's too light a word but preparation to understand each other we we and that's where you know what we've seen in in our listener base um and we've encouraged you all to to work on this is how much we kind of have this dream state of of sheer agreement uh and the it I don't want to sound like a, a Methodist from the 1920s, but, you know, major in the majors and minor in the minors wasn't 100% wrong, uh, especially if you're yeah, talking about, you know, right. living in a neighborhood. Um, right. <laughs> right.
0: Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I had a, a guy a couple of months ago. We were talking about preaching. I said, what would you what would you preach from this text? Something in John. He would basically just preach against Calvinists. And, um, yeah, that's what he said. And which is a very traditional position for our group. And I said, you know, if the Calvinists were trying to turn my children into homosexuals, I would probably preach that sermon, <laughs> but since that's not happening, <laughs> I'm going to say something else. <laughs> yeah. Can,
1: can I just hobby horse here a little bit? And, <laughs> and let me suggest to all of us, us, can I, can I say it like scared us Lutherans out there? Um, that, if you have to tell your people about what the guy who they don't know his name says is wrong so that you can tell them that it's wrong so that you can tell them what's right you're you're really fighting the wrong war. If they don't have any clue what the wrong teaching is, don't waste your time telling them the wrong teaching. Just tell them what they need to know. This is yeah. this is such a hobby horse. Not how, I just said that again, but like this is such a a dead end for us as as Lutheran movement.
0: Right. And and I mean, if I were, we brought up last week, kind of the demographics of being pro-choice or pro-life. If I were a Catholic priest, I would spend zero time telling people why the Protestants were wrong about the papacy. Because, I mean... We lost. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) Historically, we lost. Well, I mean, it's also like how much Mr. Catholic priest, Monsignor... Do you even like Pope Francis? I mean, just on a human level, yeah, or right. also on a theological level. But it's like, look, your people don't agree with some very basic teachings for which your churches are being attacked. Yeah. You have churches being burned down and, and Catholic pregnancy centers being vandalized. Arson is being committed for something that maybe more than half of your people don't even agree with you on. So you should make sure that more of them actually believe your own basic teachings about life's beginning at conception, because the energy that is expended on fighting people that do disagree with you, but really in the context of present difficulties are on your side. I mean, the Lutheran church of Missouri Synod is much more reliably pro-life, not entirely, but reliably pro-life than the Roman Catholic church. That should not be if you're Catholic. Mm-hmm. So you don't want that to be. So why don't you fight that? And the Lutherans can also spend time. I mean, Pope Francis is too much of an easy target. So I'm going to preach about something else besides him too, right? That's not the major problem we have right now. So yeah, I think it's a time for, as all difficulties are, exercises and understanding with people who are actually your allies. And it is the discovery of alliances, I think, that we will find in the years to come. Also new ones, new ones. Because it, once, you, once you realize, let's say you're Catholic and you're in politics, and you realize it's great that so many Catholics are judges and we're so prominent in the Federalist Society and blah, blah, blah. And that's whatever, that's great, fantastic. Guess who's the only people on the ground who will support your ideas about what the constitution means and that there is a right to life (laughs) evangelical Protestants. So if those people go away, (laughs) it doesn't matter that you're right about the constitution because there will be no people to support what it is that you believe.
1: So uh, there being no people continues to be something that uh, I just also have trouble imagining and yet can't ignore Uh, what was the, some of the, the conspiracy theory that came true two years later this week was lowered (laughs) sperm counts in men for 70 to 90 days following dose two, I think it was of, of whatever. Um, and, uh, uh, so I I don't want to get distracted on that, but I think your point about believing there are allies, discovering those allies, um, Getting along with those allies because they're gonna yeah. be annoying, probably. Then right. maybe, maybe you are too, probably. And you know, human civilization doesn't just thrive on uh, everyone being cheery and, and smiling a lot, um, yeah, quite the opposite. You, you thrive on a, a, a ongoing tension that tends to be a conflict of personalities that if it can reconcile strengthens and if it cannot then again turns into real conflict so unless you want to be fighting battles on multiple fronts again divided amongst those who ought to be on your side and so doing the enemy's work for him finding a a bit of patience to uh, to seek out those allies to believe that they exist it just is incredibly important and and then this this is all the more I think important for the local congregation Whatever your denomination is, should you believe it's in, uh, it's a value to prepare for the demographic collapse that is coming to to be able to talk about how do we act in the event of food supply shortages and things like that? You know, right. you're not going to have the whole congregation like no. thinking about this. No. Uh, but you might have this one guy who you really don't like, and he actually is thinking about it. And... And again, how do you set down one arm to pick up another? I, I'm not saying there's an answer, but it's something that's worth pondering and certainly worth praying about.
0: I, I, the, the, rec- the recognition that things that are utterly taken for granted cannot be taken for granted, such as the formation of families and the existence of children. So churches have thought for a long time that they needed to attract young families fine, the question is not whether you need to attract young families. It is, are there young families? Do such things exist? Can they afford to exist? Can they, can they biologically exist because mom and dad are both vaccinated? And so the rates of miscarriage and the rates of male infertility are both way up in the studies that I have read. So if that's the case, then what are you doing to foster the existence of life when you get conflicts on the scale of Roe v. Wade and and at the length of time that its reign endured and that its successor laws in various states endure and have even been extended with American abortion permissiveness generally greater than anywhere else in the world as to when during a pregnancy and, and so forth? if that's existed, then what you have to think of that as is an utter exaltation of death, similar to, in a, in a much more obvious or crass form, the Mexican cult of Santa Muerte, holy death, where you look at their images, you look at what they do, you look at its connection to crime and to the spilling of blood, and you realize that this is just a, a renovation of of ancient Aztec death cults, right? And it is visually hideous and it does horrible things to human beings. We have had in abortion in the United States of America, our our own Santa Muerte, right? Long before our Hispanic population became as high as it now is, we didn't need that population to have our own holy death. And the exaltation of death has effects outside of legal and political debates about when is it legal? And should euthanasia be legal? And, you know, when you understand these things as spiritual realities, it makes a lot more sense, for example, that you would be able to both get an abortion at any time and kill yourself legally in a certain state, but also be required to be vaccinated. Because it is living with death and for death that is the definitive spiritual reality of modern america it's i mean behind legal or political questions which i'm happy to talk about is missouri going to be the capital of the new you know some new midwestern state or something because it's <laughs> because it's red i don't know these are kind of fun questions but spiritually speaking both righteousness and evil always come in clusters so you will also find where children exist, you will find a certain joy also in the adults that does not exist where there are no children. Or you will find a certain impulse against assaults on children in various forms, socially and politically, that does not exist where there are no children. So the, it is the presence or the absence of children, whether intentionally in the case of abortion or unintentionally in the exaltation of wealth and the avoidance of children in heterosexual sex, the avoidance, too, of marriage, those things cluster together and they produce in human beings spiritual realities that have, I think, their own force, like California as a state would have to change radically and utterly. And I don't just mean on the level of electoral offices in order for it to go back from the acquaintance with death that it has Arkansas would have to become vastly more prosperous and vastly less religious very quickly in order to wind up in the same ideological place and political place that California has, right? These these places are not, I think, like like, accursed or blessed in some kind of specific geographic sense, right? I think that they are accursed or blessed according to the spiritual dalliances or graces that the people in them have received. And what has happened with those people and their spiritual lives politically and legally and academically and educationally and and everything else. So Roe v. Wade and its overturning reveal those things, I think, far more because, you know, you get this word that is everywhere in American political discourse now, doubling down, doubling down. I mean, it's, it's such a worn out metaphor. But the reason that that happens in people's spirits is for the reasons that we talked about at the very end of last week. Once you take a step in a certain direction, other steps follow of their own accord, and you don't even quite understand why you're walking that way. You just go. For me personally, I I came to a certain conviction about the Bible, that it was inspired, and actually the Word of God. And then intuitively, and without knowing why, later I figured out why, intuitively I figured out that children were an absolute good and that the prevention of them was an evil that I myself wanted to avoid. I had an intuition of these things long before I had any understanding of them because you start to walk a certain way and then the world just looks different to you.
1: I think that the the root of children being an absolute good is the fact that humans are an absolute good even with the fall that we've had into yeah, evil even right. with the scarring of the image and that's where the exploitation of death and the worship of death is the the same satanic uh, what you make of it forgetting your place thing that is uh uh started the show off here um for the death that we do receive is a, a, a punitive thing it is a recompense of evil by God, but then to turn around and try to make it the good is to be completely upside down. Right. Um, now, not to, to mix that metaphor here, but I, I've, I don't know, I'm, I really like that you brought up uh, the cult of death in Mexico. I have not met many other Anglo-Americans who are aware of this. Um, I'm kind of vividly aware of it. I don't know if it's my California background, uh, what it is that gives me an affination for uh, Mexico as a place. Um, I haven't been to large swaths of it. I've certainly not been to the nice areas. Uh, I've been to Tijuana. Um, but it, something about perhaps the engagement of uh, Latino latin culture uh, with my white growing up in southern california just made me aware of how how powerful that culture is and how slow it's been to be dissolved by those things which have dissolved yankee and american southern culture i don't think that they're not dissolving i I do think they are but i i think it's just been more resistant yet at the same time and maybe it's not. Maybe it just dissolved in a different way. So to try to kind of say what I want to say, I have had this inclination, intuition, that the the cult of death so worshipped by thugs and gangsters and uh, old women in, in Mexico is like the underbelly of, of the United States of America's worship of death politically and financially, that there's a, a strange symbiosis here that... I'm not sure I could tie it together mathematically, but they're on the same continent for the same reason, and they're just sort of two sides of a coin, which increasingly are getting closer to each other. Uh, The United States, over the next 20 to 30 years, is going to look a lot more like Mexico in terms of its actual lawlessness in terms of the way that the the government operates. And I would imagine that in some ways, Mexico is going to look more like the United States in terms of uh, educated populace, uh, people seeking self-sufficiency. They already are. Um, And so maybe this is just what First World Collapse looks like. Uh, I I don't know. Uh, I could be drawing lines where there aren't any. But I think that that cult and its worship tells us a lot about the state of the continent that we're on.
0: The exaltation of death is, I think, simply always going to be more open and cultic in a Catholic dominant culture than in a Protestant dominant culture. And even though Roman Catholics are the largest denomination in the United States of America, America is in its formation and in its terms of debate and in its understanding of what worship is and the importance of sincerity and so on and so forth. America is a Protestant country. It would have to become a completely different country in order not to be Protestant in that way. And so I mean that also for Americans who are Catholics or Jews or don't go to church at all. Our interest in personal morality and our politicians is a a Protestant country kind of a thing, for example. So we will never have the same forms of idolatry of death that a Catholic dominant country does in the same way that we won't ever treat extramarital affairs the way that the French or the Spanish do. Nonetheless, I think you're right that we are doing the same thing, but it is, it is formed in a particularly Protestant way. So let me lay this out. You can see this in Roe and in Casey, I mean, in the majority opinions there, and you can see it in the dissent on Dobbs, is this discussion of possible futures that are closed down by a woman's bearing a child. The concern here is for some kind of individual integrity that will be determined by her, that for which she is responsible and on which personal integrity the government dare not infringe. This is a very Protestant vision of the existence of the accountability of the individual soul to God without the intermediation of a higher authority. And as a Lutheran, there is a truth to that, okay? no man can die for another man's sins. That's true. That doesn't mean you can kill your child, but you are individually responsible to God. Okay, so that's, that's the basis there. Because of that, the terms of our political debates surrounding everything from abortion to euthanasia rarely discuss anything other than that appealing reality of determining your own life. Even where it comes in immediate contradiction of the same political talker's own talking points about vaccination, for example. You didn't get to determine your own body. We were all living in some sort of, just to me, absolutely horrendous prospect of a mutually interdependent third world village. So we all had to get vaccinated because the village elders were saying we had to. I mean, that is the opposite of every... Yankee instinct that I have in my body. Oh, you're telling me to do this? No, I won't. Everybody's doing this? Well, I'm not going to do it. So that was, I mean, you you can see there that our, our Protestant heritage is collapsing politically. I don't just mean in political power, I mean in the terms of discourse, and that <laughs> someone like Samuel Alito, who is an Italian Roman Catholic is upholding them better than someone who is nominally Protestant like Souter was, or John Paul Stevens was. So we, we are getting different terms of discourse, but we still tend to frame things in terms of the maximalization of freedom and individual accountability and individual capacity to handle life. That's not individualism precisely. It. It has a deeper theological root than just, you know, some sort of image of like cowboys or something. So the reality here is that we are fracturing along lines between people who are practicing something that is not just post-Christian, it's post-Protestant in its individuality, but also in its obsession with a world that has nothing to offer you. Because I think that is the bleakness that people are avoiding when they are consuming more in order to compensate for the loss or the non-existence of the children they never had. And, and this happens to everybody in America. I was in a restaurant a, a last month, maybe a month and a half ago. And this guy comes up to me and he says, are you guys Mexicans? And he was joking, right? And he was Mexican. Hmm. But he wanted to know if I was a Mexican. and I wanted to just run with it and freak him out. Yes, we have blonde hair and blue eyes, but yes, we're all Mexicans and see what he did at that point. But maybe then he would try my Spanish or something and then he would figure out that I was lying. But he asked if we were Mexicans because he said only Mexicans have seven kids. You guys must be Mexicans. His daughter, who is ethnically Mexican, was born in the United States. She has one child. Yeah. So that's the way it goes. Because what we have on offer here, whether you're doing Santa Muerte or not, whether you have some kind of ethnic affiliation with an obvious death cult, is we have on offer some sort of promise of material prosperity that is going to disappoint you, but for which you will sacrifice even other people, especially babies, because it's easy to do. You will sacrifice other people to attain that possible future. That is, I think, at the heart of the American cult of death. And maybe we could call it holy death or the whore death or death Babylon or something that the Puritan fathers would have called such an idolatrous cult because it is, it's very non-Catholic. There's no image here. It's always some possible future that you yourself can individually imagine, and then anything that gets in the way of that, you need to get rid of.
1: That's interesting. The horror of Babylon is is childless, right? Or or yep. purports to be. And so, yep. yeah, that, that's that's very real. Um, so fracturing and family, and I don't know the battle of the sexes. The Bible, the Bible, kind of sets up that there's a there's a divide between man and woman that is not good, that this is part of the the curse that we receive right. for our rebellion. And so I, I used to sort of teach like, yeah, this is just the way it is. It, it's kind of always been this way. There's going to be conflict, but Christians we know better. But it it seems to me that that might have been a bit cavalier. There certainly is an enduring disconnection uh, tyranny versus rebellion that that happens where uh, the stronger will rule over the weaker and indeed the Christian is uh, called to see strength as in service to the weak and all this Um, but I think that what is happening now particularly in this attempt to free woman from all shackles of man uh, and in this way to free man to be woman and to free woman to be man and neither of these things are anything. Um, it's, it's not normal. It's not just what's been. It's not just right. the battle of yeah. the sexes. And so that, that phrase kind of minimizes it to me. And um, that's how the boomers would talk about it is the battle of the sexes. And, and what we really have going on here is uh, a radical asexualization polymorphy taking place uh, on a soul level. Um, that then is, uh, it demonizes infants, uh, until they are idols and, and then they are, they're idols only insofar as they must achieve what we failed to achieve in our pursuit of, of the consumer gods that we have believed in and, and have followed their promises. And so, right. uh, whatever few we have are still going to be sacrificed to, to the treadmill of, of the promises of mammon, um. I don't know where you want to go on that, but.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the battle of the sexes, the phrase itself relies on a stability of reference. Right. Uh, What exactly are the sexes that you're referring to, Mr. Boomer? So that itself reveals its datedness. It's sort of a 1970s phrase. And. That is not coincidentally, I think, the last decade of horrors somewhat equal to our own, and in some ways worse. I mean, there there were things occurring openly in the 1970s, legalized child pornography in much of Scandinavia, for example, that is not currently going on. I mean, maybe that just sounds like a cope, and maybe it is just a cope. <laughs> but the 70s had horrors somewhat like our own and were the time when a lot of these things that we're discussing, some of which is now being overturned or rebelled against, came, came to being, came, came into force of law. So there isn't, I think, a battle of the sexes in this way, that they are utterly, that men and women must be constantly at odds. There is a harmony that is displayed in marriage that is a, a remnant of paradise. There really is that doesn't obviate difficulties or sins on the part of the husband or the wife, but it is a remnant as the same way that children are a remnant of some sort of beautiful trust in the Lord in the ease with which they trust in him, the ease and thus making them the model for trust, the model for faith. So when we're talking about the sexes, things like abortion, are very much serpentine in offering to women a way out of who they are. And in offering women a way out of who they are, they also offer men indirectly a way out of who they are. So the woman does not have to nurture because she can kill, and the man does not have to protect because he can walk away. This is what will eventually, and at least logically, inevitably, Create instability about the words man and woman themselves, because in that instability of what a man and a woman are supposed to be doing, we find also an instability in what a man and a woman are. So when those roles are asserted, when those roles are restored, then you come to firmer, if intuitive and unexplained convictions about what man and woman are, because human beings are meant for life, for practice. And when the practice changes, let's say the doctrine changes inevitably. If I don't see my dad being the head, then my dad one day won't be the head. If I don't see my mom nurturing, then one day she won't need to be or know how to be a nurturer. That's, that's the way things work. Practice is always revelatory, both of what you believe, and also teaches you what you believe by and by. So battle of the sexes is a 70s phrase, sure, but it is the, the wedge that is relied upon, especially for getting women not to want to be Women and for men not to want to be men. There are degrees of that. So when I think about, you know, this distinction between sex and gender, which is a given now on the left, there is a truth to their idea that gender is a performance in 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 this sense only, that if you do not live a life in accord with your biological sex, your sense of that biological sex will and and what it entails will be very vague. And maybe it will go away altogether and you'll want to be a different sex. So I understand that because there is both something that is created in us, but then that what is given to us has to be used, has to be acted upon. And when it's not acted upon, because we don't believe that a woman needs to give birth or a man needs to protect life or whatever, then our sense of what man and woman are will obviously crumble.
1: So then what's what's the takeaway, or is the is the next action just to be more aware of uh, where the arguments are right now? I mean, we, we've talked about the shock that's taking place uh, with The Next Generation, wherein the, the attempt is to so confuse and curmuddle it all uh, that they become— I don't know, easy consumer pawns. I mean, what yeah. really is the end game that they, they, yeah. they play video games and do drugs? I, I, I don't know. Or, or is it? I mean, obviously it's demonic and, and then behind yeah. it all is just destructiveness and chaos.
0: Satan is a hater of mankind. So whether his his tools are Klaus Schwab this week or not, he is one who hates mankind and he hates what is good. And he hates beautiful things. He hates beautiful families, I think, maybe most of all. That is the blessing that I think he he sought to steal from Adam is the existence of a peaceful life that, that was given him. If we love mankind, then the next action is not only to understand what the arguments are going to be, but especially wherever and whenever we can, politically, also locally, congregationally as well as nationally to foster life. It is why you see people on a political level like Blake Masters talking about you should be able to sustain a family in the United States of America on a single income. You see things like that finding some purchase as well as the intuition that many Christians of all stripes are having, especially in our generations, about the idea that children are a blessing. This was certainly not taught to us by our forefathers. And yet we, we have come there nonetheless. So those, those things, those realities come upon us. I think unbidden except by force of events, things happen. And we realize that we need to change or we're not going to survive or life will have no beauty in it. So that's what we want to pursue. And, That's also how we can understand the violence that will and does exist on the left against churches, against people who are helping women to nurture their babies, against lots of things, and also just the vulgarity with which they do this. There is no politeness. There is no calm. There is no moderation. There is no kindness. They're throwing red paint everywhere as a not very veiled threat about the shedding of blood because for them, this is existential. They, they do not want this vision of life. They enjoy rule by demons and they want more of it. And you are closing off their satanic small S in this case, because it's available to human beings, satanic future. They can't determine everything. They would actually have to nurture life or protect life, and they don't want to do that. So uh, these things are existential and utter, and that is why they are so significant, and we've devoted two weeks to it because it is a it, it is a marker that we have passed, and now we can't go back. And I don't mean that we can't go back in some sort of who knows what, what court will rule In what way I mean that we can't Go back in our lives together Spiritually speaking as if this Didn't happen
1: no I mean And you make all the laws you want You have a a separatist Violent movement that's going To nonetheless be there Living somewhere in the same city as you uh, Probably next door in some level And I mean That that I I do want to kind of Come circle back to this like The term civil war comes with all sorts of nostalgic baggage that, you know, you, you tried to undo that with the study of the Spanish Civil War that we did a while back, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure how much that really did for me in terms of shifting my, my <laughs> mind. It was like, okay, so there was this pre-World War II version of it that was very different and looked like a kind of espionage and violence in the cities, looked like, like a third world country kind of regularly, yeah, the right. way they, they, they run. Right. Um, but to again be be very ready for this as are you a pastor uh, are you a christian that attends church be very ready for this that what we're seeing in the the vocalization of the hatred that our our brother and sister citizens in this country have for us is not is not performance uh, it is not veiled it it, it is real and uh, they are going to target you or the place where you are, all the more if you happen to be in a red state. And so, you know, the, this hardly uh, does justice to it, but the, yeah. the very idea that the Department of Homeland Security or uh, Health and Human Services, excuse me, uh, would start using federal lands uh, in order to create abortion clinics uh, in states that outlaw abortion, um, th- that is, that's not where that's going to stop. Right. <laughs> not at right. all.
0: So yeah, and I the reason that we talked about the Spanish Civil War was because it is like our current dissension in the United States much more ideological, much more clearly divided, much more extremely or deeply divided than the United States was at the time of during or after our own civil war in which the vast majority of Americans agreed that You know, this is how life should work, and this is what a father did, and this is what the education system was supposed to be like, largely, or it was up to the states. And so the South looked different from the North. And one way that you can tell what wars were like is by the monuments that exist after those wars. There are relatively few monuments to or about abolitionists, that is, the most radical abolitionists who wanted to get into a war with the South in order to end slavery. That was not a common understanding. The common understanding in the North was that this was for the preservation of the union. Therefore the monuments to union soldiers in little town squares in places like Ohio and Massachusetts are about the preservation of the union. They're very rarely about slavery and the valorization there is of a union soldier in the same country the monuments that especially were attacked after or during and after 2020 in the South, those were erected for a variety of reasons, but the largest of which was because the North did not see the South as something other than fellow Americans with whom they had disagreed. And I find this a lot also, even in our own church, and maybe it's a perspective thing. Maybe your ancestors weren't even here at the time of the civil war. So it all seems very abstract, But they thought of those people as Americans and the war was over and then the differences were settled. Okay. You may agree or not agree with how they settled those differences or the North's endorsement of segregation, not only permission, but even practice of it de facto and sometimes de jure itself. But they agreed. It it wasn't a nation that needed to always remain constantly divided or had to fracture forever. That wasn't, in fact, the idea. Okay. Spain is not like that. Spain has exhumed Franco and reinterred him elsewhere. We didn't do that to Robert E. Lee. In fact, Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis died in peace and with honor because we didn't see them as irreconcilable opponents. You don't have to agree with me that that was good. I'm just saying it happened, right? So I cannot see that happening if someone got a hold of Samuel Alito, they will dishonor his body. They will, in fact, try to assassinate him. Okay. And the reason they will do that is because they do not see him, perhaps even as worthy of life, let alone as a person in the same political polity of the same nation with the kind of understanding and sympathy that those things entail. That's why we're looking more like Spain than like America.
1: Yeah, they don't. They yeah. don't see him as human. No, or they don't see human as valuable.
0: Which they don't see babies as human. brings it back. To, alone yeah. Samuel Alito. Yeah, they,
1: it brings it back to the main point that, that humanity is uh, is less than beautiful in and of itself for its own sake. Which does it beg the question? That, you know, uh, without a creation narrative that presents humanity as from a higher power. That intends us to be here how long can you retain anything other than uh, the chaos and obfuscation the confusion and the descent into madness when you believe that there is no reason but that the Big Bang is a beautiful thing in and of itself how long can beauty be a thing Um, and I, I really do think it's it's that simple that ideas do have consequences and they just take a while to work themselves out, but they're going to be there.
0: Yeah. Devotion to demons is unsurprising in a people who believe that they are accidental or are random, and then whose life experience reinforces those things when they do not have a home where their mother or their father are present, or if they are, their devotion to them or instruction of them is spotty or nonexistent in any way not only instruction in God's word, but instruction in basic facts of life. So they are educated willy nilly. They are taught essentially nothing of any use or truthfulness. And then they arrive at adult life with the incapacity to make choices, but the responsibility to make enormous numbers of choices. Pro-choice is such a telling adjective because It sees the basis of life in choice, and that is, in fact, not the source of love in life. (laughs) Love, by God's design, comes to you from people who did not choose to love you and whom you did not choose to love, but the love is mutual, naturally, nonetheless, in your mother and your father for you and you for them. All these things have to be cultivated, but it's sitting right there. Life is a gift. It's not a choice I make. It's not a conglomeration of my choices. So you're right that this is, I think, it's unsurprising. And I think it's unsurprising precisely because it is so obviously satanic.
1: Can you see a time, uh, I mean, or, or an edge to this where we have a government that strictly for the sake of survival itself needs to become a little more of what a medieval government would have been that is so I've got my my twelve knights on, on some horses and you've got your pitchforks and your, your homemade, you know, flamethrowers and umbrellas to hide your face. And we just shoot you. Because it, watching this stuff with the violence and the police, it just it just baffles my mind, like the freedom that is still protected for an individual to, uh, to protest the way that they are, that's all founded on this same thing that we're tearing down. It, at what point <clears throat> does the rule of law become the rule of the sword and nothing more? And it, I guess the thing that pushes back on that is this idea that uh, video and or Photography changed the way the public are able to see war, and so now the public won't tolerate it. But again, I, I, I'm not sure other countries um, where things are just more collapsed really have that public
0: pushback. That kind of that kind of regime will will exist, whenever and wherever. The remnants of what we do have in the Constitution and common law, the sense of the rule of law, wherever and whenever that collapses. So for the people arrested in connection with January 6th, it's already gone. Those little pockets of disorder, misrule, those expand and expand and expand they can be pushed back against within the terms of the system that we currently have. I do think that one problem that listeners consistently have not so much with the show, but, but in terms of the show and the, and the show is not here to solve all your problems. It's here, especially to get you to think and to become active in what you're doing and who you are. Okay. A problem people consistently have is that I, I think that you think in increments that are far too small, you're thinking in terms of election cycles or something. And that is totally fine. But usually, if you want to do something worthwhile, you need to start thinking in terms of centuries. And so if you think in terms of centuries, then I can imagine all kinds of possible American futures within 200 years. I mean, we're not that far past 200 years. So what's going to happen in another 200 years? So when I think about it that way, then that induces patience. It's also why, at least I stress, and I I think Pastor Fist stresses this as well, also in his other venues, is thinking about building, actually building things yourself, communities, organizations, maybe buildings, ways of doing things, ways of paying for life, ways of supplying food. The reason to build those things is because You don't want to wait to see what will happen next. That is a passivity induced in you by the media cycle. You want to say, okay, I will fight to preserve the right to life in American constitutional terms as long as I possibly can. Once that is eclipsed, then I'll do something else. Or maybe it will be preserved. I mean, who knows? You know, who knows? I think people want something like quick and simple because that's how they used to preparing food and getting information and lots of other things. If you start to think in multi, multi multi-generational ways, then you're going to have a lot more patience and you can also just be more flexible because you realize maybe we'll get to (laughs) medieval warfare, like pastor Fisk is talking about, or maybe we will continue. Just Samuel Alito just continues like slashing and burning across the legal landscape of America with the help of Clarence Thomas. Either are things that I can handle and I'm going to have some time to react to them. So I, I think don't get short-sighted by victories, but especially don't get short-sighted by defeats because conservative people are much more used to being defeated than to being victorious. I mean, when they're victorious, they don't even know what to do. And a lot of them were ashamed last week when they got an actual legal victory. <laughs> they didn't know what to do. All they needed to do was to say, oh, I'm kind of sorry that you feel bad that you didn't win, but I won, but that's, sorry if I act happy about it at all. You know, we don't know what to do with victory. We might be victorious long-term, we might not. We might be victorious under a different political structure, we might not have to. I don't know. All you can really do is to prepare for the future that you are actually capable of reacting to and to leave the other things to God.
1: So that makes me think of a couple of things. First off, uh, not knowing how to win is a definite (laughs) <laughs> result of the feminization of man in yeah. our in our society, yeah. definitely. Um, I I liked that at the seminary. You know, there was a motto for uh, the St. Louis preachers. It was uh, humble in victory, gracious in defeat. Like I think there's some there's some honor in that. Yeah, but it's really been turned a little m- more into, you know, like you said, a- a ashamed of victory, um, uh, frustrated by defeat or something like that. shame by <laughs> defeat too. You know, it's just it's just <laughs> right. nothing but shame. Um, so if you want to say more about that, that's, that's good. But then the, the other thing that you know, as you talk about listening to the show and wanting the quick fix, and um, you know, what are we really here for? Um, Maybe this helps, maybe this doesn't, but it's it's a recurring thing for me where uh I I know what I've got to do today. And so I get that done. And I know what I've told myself I want to do for the long term. And you know, I think that thinking in centuries is is super valuable. Hebron Collegium is is founded on that very dream. But there's only a few small things I can do about that today as well, and some of them are actually bigger than they seem, and I'm not even sure they're the right thing to do, so I'm not in a hurry to get them done. And so now here I am, and it's it's 3 o'clock, and it's a sunny day, and I'm not sure what to do, Uh, but I feel like I should. What? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, so I open Twitter and I scroll and the feeling like I should gets worse you know, because there's so much and it's all bad and I can't believe it and more really and, and on and on and on. So I close Twitter and then I continue to stew in this fabricated box of loss that the world has trap me. And I made a joke about you know the AI tricking us into believing we're somewhere. And I joke or I just, I don't care about the AI. Um, I don't think the devil's artificial. Uh, but I do believe that the ruler of this world has a game plan. And it definitely thinks in centuries. And it definitely targets stagnating, not just me, me as every man, in fear of today and tomorrow and so there i am on a sunny afternoon a beautiful day stagnated and afraid of a boogeyman now what do i do i've rediscovered i love reading goodness if i can get i'll go sit and read and just you leave me alone and i will i will read and read and read and read (laughs) but um you know what i'm a pastor my vocation actually fits pretty well with that so you know i've i've I'm not going and buying a cow and milking it because that doesn't fit with my vocation. And maybe that's wrong, right? Maybe I'm being too patient. Maybe I'm not acting. And and I asked that question. But the reason I'm sharing all of this again is I, I think I'm probably not alone in those moments of feeling terror where if I will stop listening to the story for a second and just assess what I'm actually seeing... I'm sitting in the sun, reading a book about something I love that's going to have use this week. I'm living the life of my dreams. It's been given to me by God. It's a great joy in every way. And I would hope that the listener finds that somewhere, somehow for them, that you're actually really enjoying your life more than the talking box has let you know.
0: Right. Because you you can't think about life in the media terms that have been erected for you. Not only that there is more to the story, but also that you need to be aware above all things of God's providence and gifts of his fatherliness. And when you lose a sense of his fatherliness, you have lost a sense of what life is, which is precisely what those who despise life believe They believe that life is a set of choices rather than a gift and that the giver is abundant in his gifts
1: who is wise and understanding among you let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts do not boast and lie against the truth this wisdom does not descend from above but is earthly sensual demonic For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make for peace. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us, or you wouldn't be here.